0: I invite you to remain standing for the reading of the Word of God. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke and chapter 23. We'd like to read responsibly this morning, beginning in verse number 32 to verse number 43. Allow me to read verse 32, and I will read the succeeding even-numbered verses through verse 42. Would you read with me, please, verse 33, along with the succeeding odd-numbered verses to verse 43. Once again, that's Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43, and reading responsively. And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood before, and the rulers also were. He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, in Latin and Hebrew, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we received his due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. May God have his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's make our prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, as we look at the Calvary's cross this morning, have your will way in every heart and with every mind and every Thought, Lord, that traces across our minds in the next half hour of preaching Thy Word, we pray. And Lord, do a work of grace in every heart. We ask, and we'll thank You for it. I pray these things in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. We look forward to next Sunday. Obviously, it's Resurrection Sunday, but this is Palm Sunday. This is the week of Passion, when Jesus walked down that road of the Via Dolorosa, as we call it, and He went to Calvary's cross we're on the subject of the glory of the cross last three sundays there's the glory of the cross but god forbid that i should glory save or accept in the cross of our lord jesus christ two weeks ago we preached a message entitled the joy of the cross hebrews chapter 12 verse number 2 tells us who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross suffering the shame or despising the shame and then of course last sunday we preached on the peace by the cross and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, we looked at by, or through his cross, our sin is paid, our slate is clean, our peace was made, and all can come. This morning, we want to address the subject of the love of the cross. I want you to look at verse number 33. It is our text verse. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary. The only time in the Bible you find the word Calvary is here in Luke chapter 23, verse number 33. Calvary, it's got such a beautiful ring to it, doesn't it? We love, we have Calvary churches, Calvary Baptist churches, Calvary Bible church. I don't know of any Golgotha churches, but Golgotha is the place of the skull. We looked last week that it's a ghoulish place, a ghastly place, a gory place. A place beyond Gethsemane, of course, Golgotha's Hill. The word Calvary is Latin for the place of the skull. It was a horrid place. It was a place of execution, of course. And it was here that we see the greatest love of mankind ever displayed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was brokered at the cross of Calvary. I want to give you four things this morning as we dissect our passage of Scripture this morning. I want you to consider Calvary's love. Notice verse 33 as we begin. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. I want you to consider these two common thieves, as they were known, two common criminals, Their commonality, we don't know who was on the right hand and who was on the left hand. We don't know their names. We don't know anything about them. We know they weren't Roman citizens because Romans were not allowed to be crucified. We suspect that they were Jews. We suspect that maybe they were followers of Barabbas. Remember at Pilate's Judgment Hall, they asked when they had a choice between Barabbas and Christ, they said, give us Barabbas. What do I do with this one that's called Jesus? They said, crucify him, crucify him. They could have been followers of Barabbas, we don't know their age. We don't know for sure if they were Jews, but we, we suspected they probably were. The crucifixion was the, the ex, execution of choice for Jews. And we see the equality of, Christ, of Calvary's love this morning. The equality of Calvary's love. Was it on the right hand, the thief on the right hand, or the thief on the left hand that received the Lord as we read the passage of Scripture? We don't know. But I want to give you some common grounds with both of these thieves, one on one side, one on the other side of Christ. And everybody in this room fits in one of these in the lives of one of these two thieves, of course. first of all, both were criminals. Both were sinners. The Bible says for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As it's written there's none righteous no not one. There's a, we're all sinners. We're big sinners, little sinners, rich sinners, poor sinners. Male sinners, female sinners, boy sinners, girl sinners. I've added it in for effect here this morning here. New, new, new gender age equality that we live in. But I want you to know that this equality at the cross between these two common thieves, they were they were criminals. Not only were they criminals, but they were both condemned. They were sentenced to death. The Bible says, for the wages of our sin is death. First John, or 1 Corinthians 1, nine says, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves. I got a call this morning. It's my weekly call from my mother, of course. And uh, my dad is so close to eternity, obviously. They called the ambulance last night. They called the ambulance three days ago. They took him to the hospital. He's 85 now. And he's so close to eternity. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be next month. I don't know. It could be three months from now. I don't know, but it's close. And the sentence of death has come up, is, is upon us all. It is appointed a man once to die, but after this judgment. These men were condemned to die. They were sentenced, sentenced to death. They were criminals. But thirdly, we notice in verse number 33, of course, they were crucified. None of us here will have to suffer the death of crucifixion. Aren't you thankful for that? And all God's people said, yet we are to bear our cross. We are to be, as Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But I'm glad I won't have to die on a cross. But I've known some suffering in my life, and you've known some suffering in your life, not to the extent of these, these common criminals, these condemned men, but they were suffering on that cross greatly. We talked about the suffering, the excruciating, torturous death of crucifixion last week in some detail. They were, they were suffering and they were slain. At one point or another, and I brought up my father to say that, and Cecile, her seal was in the first service this morning. Had, Cecile's brother in Switzerland is 85 years old, same age as my father, and he's at the point of death. Maybe there's a race to see who's going to die first, but he's been suffering for a lot of years now, too. And, uh, but we're all going to suffer to, throughout life to one extent or another. Suffering is a part of human experience. You say, I haven't suffered much. Don't worry, your day will probably come. Time will, will reveal that, of course. So their commonality, they were both criminals, the one on the left and the one on the right. They were both sinners. They were both condemned. They were both sentenced to death. And we have an appointment with death. It is appointed in a man once to die, but after this, a judgment. They were both crucified. They both suffered and were slain. But fourthly, in my little outline here I have, Both had a conscience. Everyone in this room has a conscience this morning. You have a clean conscience or a good conscience or a bad conscience or a corrupt conscience or a cursed conscience. But we have a conscience. The Bible says in John chapter 16, verse 8 through 11, speaking about the Holy Spirit of God, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Men are convicted of their sin. And the, the depravity of man, the, the sinfulness of man, the, the wickedness of man is, is, is hard to comprehend, of course. And even unsaved people, people that are not Christians, they have a conscience. And their conscience, one has a corrupted conscience, one had a convicted conscience, as we're going to find out. But these two men on the cross, these two men had a commonality, of course. They, they, they had equal access to the Savior, they both had a confrontation. Notice verse number 38 of our text. Above the placard, uh, above the head of Jesus, rather, was, and his superscription also was written over him in letters in, of Greek and in Latin and Hebrew. This is the King of the Jews. They were confronted with the fact that Jesus Christ was called the King of the Jews. In Revelation, he's called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Everyone, I would dare say that everyone in America has been confronted with Jesus Christ hundreds and thousands of times in their life in the way of his name uttered in profanity. You notice when somebody stubs their toe or something goes wrong or they're cursed at work, they don't say, oh, Muhammad," They don't say, oh, Allah. But the name that's above all and every name is used in cursing. If you've never been to church, you know the name of Jesus Christ if you live in America and you live around the world. Here these men are being hanged. They're being crucified, one on the right hand, one on the left hand side. And there's confrontation with Christ in the superscription, the sign. And You go down south and you see the three crosses and on hillsides all over uh, the south the part of our country. You'll see billboards, Jesus saves. You must be born again. Uh, Jesus is coming again. You cannot help but be confronted with the fact that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is the Savior. Both these men had a conversation, or a confrontation, and then both of them had a, had a personal conversation with Christ. Think about that. They saw Christ for six hours on that cross. They even spoke to him, as they are going to find out. We speak to Christ, and uh, we see him every day. And the Bible says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth its handiwork. Day unto day out of their speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone up to the end of the world. We see, when we look out and I look at these windows, I see a speck of God's creation. I see God. I see God in the trees. I see God in flowers, in the lily of the valley, as we just sang. I see him in tulips. I see him in, in his creation. I see him in humanity. I see him in the spark and the twinkle of an eye. I see Christ, of course. And these men saw Christ up close and personal for six hours. So they, they had a confrontation with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They had a conscience, a sense of guilt, a sense of sin. They were crucified, they were condemned, they sentenced to die. And of course, they were criminals, they were sinners. But I want you to notice these two men, like all of us, they both had a conclusion. One day, the Bible says that it is appointed man wants to die. We don't know the age of these men, but we suspect they were young criminals, young thieves. Maybe they were in their teens, maybe their 20s, 30s. We don't know, really. The Bible doesn't tell us. But one way or another, we're, the Bible says, what is our life but a vapor? We're here today and gone tomorrow. We're, we're, whether we live to be 70 or 80, life goes by like a f- flash. And their life was short, and death was quick. That day they were sentenced to death, of course, they would hang and bleed and die, as you, the other Gospels tell us. They came and broke their legs, of course, and they hung about the same time an hour over hours that Christ hung on the cross, six hours. So both had a conclusion. Both had a short lives and both had a soon death. Both had a confrontation. Both had conversations with Christ himself. Both had a conscience and were, both were crucified. Both were condemned. Both were criminals. But only one was converted. Only one was saved, and we'll look at that in a few moments. But anyone wanting to go to the crucifixion, this is grotesque, I know, a gory, graphic, I realize. But crucifixion was a public display. Anybody could come to the cross. Anybody could witness. It was a public ex- execution, of course. And there was only a handful of people there, some women, and John was the only apostle that was there. His rains came down, and the thunder roared, and the Guy turned to blackness from noon till three. Christ hung on the cross with just a handful of people uh, witnessing the, the death, but anybody could come to the cross. It's true today that anybody can still come to the cross of Calvary and kneel at the cross. Amen. Second Corinthians, Second Peter three and nine reminds us the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but it's long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come. To repentance. Revelation chapter 22, five verses from the end of the Bible, verse 17. The, and the Bible says, In the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit of God, and the Bride, that's the children of God, say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is the thirst come, and whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. You see, folks, there's, I want you to know that there's love, there's equality at Calvary's cross. And Calvary's cross, between two, Lord Jesus Christ, there was one thief on the right hand and one thief on the left hand. One receives, one rejects. One calls upon Christ, other, uh, other mocks Christ, of course. We see the equality at Calvary's cross and this love at Calvary's cross. But I want you to notice, secondly, verse number 34, as we begin to journey down through the passage. Then said Jesus... And we looked at this last week, of course. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first of seven great sayings on the cross of Calvary, the first saying, I prefer to think that Christ said those words when they were nailing his hands and feet to the cross of Calvary. Without a whimper, without a cry, without a burst of anger or profanity, or, or he, he, he died his lamb to, to slaughter, the sheep uh, silent to the slaughter, and he, he prayed that prayer, a prayer, a plea, a petition. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, I want you to consider for a few minutes here as we look at verse 35, the extremities of Calvary's love. The question is asked, who, were, who was he asking to forgive? Were the Romans that nailed his hands and feet to the cross? Who was he praying to forgive look at verse 35 and the people stood beholding and the rulers also with them derided him saying he saved others let him save himself if he be the Christ the chosen of god you think of the variety of people in verses 30 and 4 and 35 from the romans to his relatives from the pagan to the princes from the rotten wicked to the filthy religious, from his enemies to his ethnicity, from those that hated him and to his own race, his own people. He came unto his own, his own received him not. We, what do we learn from the first words of Jesus on the cross of Calvary? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. We learn, first of all, four things here. Calvary's love is available or able to forgive even the enemies of the cross. At one point in time, we were all enemies of the commonwealth of Israel. We were all enemies of the cross of Calvary. We were without hope, without God, without Christ, having no hope in this present world. The Lord prayed the prayer in Matthew 5, and verse 44. He prayed a prayer, and I know he honored that prayer. He said, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. The Lord, told us to pray for, his, for our enemies. He prayed for his enemies. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Calvary's love is able to forgive the enemies of the cross, but secondly, Calvary's love is able to forgive the most heinous, even the greatest of sinners and sins. J. J. Oswald Sanders, the famous preacher of years gone by and commentator, wrote these words, and I quote, Man's enmity and hatred for God and his holiness reached its climax in the rejection and crucifixion of his son. When under the guise of sanctity and religion, the religious leaders of the day per- perpetrated the most heinous or most outrageous crime of all time, it was then Jesus uttered these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You have not committed any sin so great that God can't forgive you of. Right. There's only one sin that God will never forgive, and that's the sin of rejecting his Savior, his Son as, as your Savior, not receiving Christ as Savior. And Then I want you to notice, the, back to our, our first f- phrase that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want you to consider that as theologians have dissected this verse, there's been whole books written on this one verse of, one verse of Scripture, this first prayer, this first saying of the seven on Calvary's cross. That There are those that say, well, he's just, he just forgave them for the sense of ignorance. But I would submit to you that God forgives us of for our sense of ignorance and sense, sense of consciousness sins sense of knowledge. In fact, the Bible tells us in Psalm 19, verse number 13, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Calvary's love covers, thirdly, the ignorant as well as the willful sins. And I would conjecture, I think it's true for every one of us, that most of the sin that we commit, we commit it willfully. We know what we're doing, and we do it anyhow. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. You know, there's one bad thing about you coming to church this morning. That is when you leave, you're a little bit more accountable and you were when you walked in the, first walked in the door. Too much is given, much shall be required. We, we know much. We, 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 the sense of omission, things that we don't do that we should do, the sense of commission, things that we do do that we shouldn't do. One church talks about mortal sins and venial sins, big sins, little sins, sins that were worthy of death, and sins that can be so-called sacrifice. But all sin is sin. And I want you to know that most of our sin that we commit as Christians is willful sin. I want you to know the love at Calvary's cross was efficient to even forgive us of our willful sin, let alone our sense of ignorance. But fourthly, not only is Calvary's love able to forgive the enemies of the cross, and secondly, Calvary's love is able to forgive the most heinous, the greatest of our sins. Thirdly, Calvary's blood, uh, Calvary's love rather covers the ignorant as well as the willful sins. But fourthly, Calvary's love is more than we can comprehend. There is no way that we can comprehend the fact, the Bible says, greater love hath no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friend. To think that God would die for not a righteous man, but for an ungodly man. I have to be careful here in this illustration, and I know Brother McGee is a veteran of the, the Vietnam War, and a Marine, of course, pardon me for being vocal, or rather being to the point, but wounded twice in Vietnam, he would have gladly given his life for his country. I'm not sure there was a day in my life, and I had to be careful here, when I, I, and I, I love my country. I love the country we used to have. I'm afraid we might have lost our country, the country I knew growing up as a boy. We'd lost our country, and I'm not sure if I'd be willing to give my life for. I'm not, I'm not Ukrainian. I'm not willing to give my life necessarily for my country any longer. Maybe I should. I know that's shameful to say, but I'm just being honest. Maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't, but I, I, the jury's out now in my mind. But Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for us while we were yet sinners, while we didn't care. He died for our greatest or grossest sins. He died when we were his enemies. He died for those not only just for sins of ignorance but sins of wilfulness. In Ephesians three seventeen says it this way, that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of God and the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. The song says, so high you can't get over it, so low you can't get under it, so wide you can't get around it, so is the love of God. Even as a child of God, to think that he became sin for me who knew no sin, that I might be made the righteousness of God in him, that's a mind-blower of mind-blowers. Miracle of miracles, that he would become sin for me, that I might have life in heaven more abundantly. I might have eternal life, be delivered from hell and on my way to heaven. So we see in Calvary's love, the quality of Calvary's love. We see in Calvary's love the extremity, the, the length and the depth and the breadth and the height of Calvary's love in the the variety of people that Christ died for, he asked forgiveness for. But then I want you to consider verse number 38 as we look at our third point. Again, it says, and one of the male factors, excuse me, verse number 38, and a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. Notice, I love our Bible, it has it all capitalized, and God wanted it that way. This is the King of the Jews. Later on in Revelation 19, he's called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want you to consider the, the fact that the highest of the high condescended to become the lowest of the low. The King of all glory condescended, came. From the Father's throne above, so free, so infinite is grace. He emptied himself with all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Calvary's love is extravagant in the fact that the highest of high became the lowest of low. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. In fact, Brother Dave used it in his science class this morning. The Bible says, but made himself, Jesus made himself a no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. The highest the king of kings left his earthly kingly estate to come to an earthly cross. Consider that it's a mind blower of mind blowers. Uh, there's been a debate in our country for a couple hundred years, I don't know how true it is, but it's the poor man's son that goes off to war. Rich men's sons get, can buy, buy, buy off and, and not have to go to war. That's not always the case. Some rich men send their, their sons and daughters to war, I suppose. But mostly it's the common man that goes to, goes to uh, war, of course. And, and Lord, the king of all kings, Jehovah God, sent his son, gave the supreme sacrifice, and lowered himself to the lowly... Virgin Mary, of course, and Carpenter and Joseph, of course, and humbled himself and became obedient to death, lived 33 years of this earth, and tempted all points such as we are yet without sin, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So we see this highest of high became the lowest of the low, but secondly, in regards to the extravagance of Calvary's love, the sacrifice that was performed on Calvary's cross was exceeding abundantly, above all that we can think. And he washed away all our sins by his blood, and there was not a wasted drop of blood. I want you to turn in your Bible first time this, this morning to another passage. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 23, or Matthew chapter 26 it is. I want you to see this, please. Matthew 26. This is recorded in Luke's gospel and also John's gospel. The story of Mary of Bethany. This is in the first, this is a week before the cross of Calvary. In Matthew 26, beginning in verse number 8, or verse number 6, for time's sake, notice what the Bible says. Now when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box, of very precious ointment, and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. John's gospel records that she poured it on his head and his feet, and with her hair, she wiped his feet with her hair. And Luke's gospel records verse number six and tells us in more detail. But when the disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, to what purpose is this waste? I want you to notice this woman took this alabaster box and she broke it and spilled it out. We had that song broken and spilled out. The Lord broke, was broken and spilled out on the cross. And some said, what is this waste? Judas said, he led the charge, and he said, what is this waste? This could have been sold to the, and given to the poor. Now I want to give you a, a segue into the fact that Christ's blood, and there's big theological discussion and division in churches all across America and around the world in regards to this doctrine I'm ready to teach you. The washing, the, the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some say that his blood was only shed for the elect, those that received Christ as Savior. But 1 John 2 2 says he is the propitiation for our sins, or the covering for our sins, but not for us only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What I'm trying to tell you is there is blood efficacious enough, use a big fancy theological word, to die on that, shed on that cross, to cleanse us from all our sins, and everybody else's sins in all the world. Anybody that comes to Christ can have uh, their sins forgiven and cleansed forever. He is the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. The extravagance of Calvary's love. There is blood poured out to forgive us of all of our sins past, present, and ones we'll commit today and tomorrow and in the future. His blood, this, this Calvary's love is so efficacious. It's extravagant love. It's so full, full of variety from the highest to the high, to the lowest to the low, from the, the the criminal to the, or to the, uh, the uh, I have to look at my notes here. From the pagan to the prince, there it is. From the Romans to their relatives. From the rotten wicked to the filthy religious. We see the equality of Calvary's love. But I want you to notice verse 39 as we continue on and look at this fourth truth of Calvary's love this morning. Calvary's love is, has equality to it, two thieves with equal access. Calvary's love has the extremities of it, from his enemies to his ethnicity. He died for the Greek and the Roman, and he died for the Jew as well. Calvary's love has the extravagance of it. He, Christ, The king of kings, the highest of high, who came to the lowest of low, and his offering was more than efficient to cover all of our sins, past, present, and future, and any sins Still yet to be, even those that have not received Christ as Savior. But I want you to notice, fourthly, verse 39, notice to me, and one of the malefactors were hanged, uh, which were hanged, rather, railed on him, saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Think about it. Here's this criminal. He's going to die in a few minutes or a few hours. He's mocked Jesus, he's mocked Christ his whole life probably. Here he is hanging on the cross ready to die and he's still mocking him. I've seen people that lived a life of godlessness and without Christ in their life. and then Many times they'll go to their graveside, they'll go to their bedside and they'll go to their death still mocking and cursing and railing on Christ. It's interesting about this Calvary's love. One was blinded to it. The Bible says in First Corinthians 4 and verse number 4, but the God of this world hath blinded their minds, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them and they should be saved. Calvary's love is staring you in the face. Calvary's love is real, but some are blinded to it. One, bl- one was blinded to it but one believed in it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. One fought it. One said, If thou be the Christ, come down from the cross and save thyself and save us. One found it. One refused it. One received it. He came unto his own, John 11. And his own received him not. But as many as received him. To them gave he the power becomes the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. One profaned it. One pled for it. He said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He said in verse number 32, it is, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He prayed a simple sinner-like prayer. And the Lord said in verse number 43, And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, notice the next two words, today, to be absent from the body, for those in Christ, is to be present with the Lord. For to me to live is Christ, Paul said, and to die is gain. We see, for Jesus said, for today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That day, the last day, one life, one's life ended vilely. The other one's life ended victoriously. And this is a victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. I've given my testimony at least 100 times, probably 500 times from the pulpit. I give it to 500 the first time. This 11-year-old boy grew up in country Ohio, went to a church. Didn't even know why I was going to church. The neighbors brought me there, and I went to something called a revival meeting. I didn't even know what a revival meeting was. I don't even know if i heard the word before. An evangelist got up and preached the gospel. I sat in the second row. An invitation was given. And we sang "Just as I am, without one plea." I don't think I'd ever heard the song before, but I remember it that day. I walked forward with my little Cleveland Indians baseball cap on. The preacher took me to his back office. Back in those days, that's what seemed like happened. Preacher led me in a sinner's prayer. I didn't want to go to hell. He said, "You need to receive Jesus as Savior." I didn't know Jesus was God. I didn't know about the Trinity. I didn't know He was born of a virgin. At eleven years old, I don't think I knew what a virgin was. And yet I called upon him with the knowledge that I had as an 11-year-old boy. As a child, I came to Christ, asked him to forgive me of my sin and come into my heart. I don't ever remember crying a tear that day at 11 years old. But many, many, many times since then, I've shed tears knowing how wonderful it is to be saved. See, today, these two thieves on the cross, one is without him. And one without him forever. And one is with him. How about you today? Second Corinthians 6.2 tells us, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The songwriter said, in fact, John Starnes wrote the song, and he sings the song, See my Jesus on the cross, the people crying. Looking on, a man would think it tragedy. But what the world could not see was when they nailed him to that tree. It would break the sin- chains of sin's captivity. Love grew where the blood fell. Flowers of hope sprang up for men in misery. Sin died where the blood fell. I'm so glad his precious blood has covered me. I want you to just meditate for about four minutes here as we consider that truth. Love grew where the blood fell. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for Calvary's love this morning. Lord, help us to comprehend with the length and the breadth and the height and the depth the love of Christ which passes understanding. Pray, Lord, that you bless as we have a last moments of invitation, dear God. May we have more love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee, O Christ. Help us on bend and knee, Lord, make this our earnest plea that we have more love to thee, we pray. Lord, bless in our invitation time, Lord, maybe there be those who need to receive Christ as Savior today. We pray, pray that you work in their heart, Holy Spirit of God, and may today be the day of salvation and by receiving Christ alone as their Lord and Savior. Well, thank you for it, Lord. I pray you bless in our moments of invitation. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As we stand, page 90 is in the hymn book, page 90. And I've that first verse.